For the week of April 18th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On the show this week, we talk with the strangers Anna Sophia Knauf about her coverage of the recent hunger strike at the ICE Detention Center in Tacoma. And then we talk with E.J. Juarez. He is the executive director of Amplify, a nonprofit advocacy group that recruits and trains candidates for political office with a focus on diversity. And as per usual, we have our dose of good news, followed by our weekly call to action. First, we welcome Anna Sophia Knauf. She writes for The Stranger to talk about a piece that she did about the hunger strike at the ICE detention center in Tacoma. Uh, thank you for joining us, Anna Sophia. Thanks so much for having me. So first, I should mention that the hunger strike is largely over at this point, save for one person, and that is of the recording of this podcast on the 17th. Uh, but I think it's important to talk generally about the center, about the conditions there, and and most of all about the people who are there. So let's begin by talking about who these people are and uh, why they're being held there. Who are they? Sure. Um, I think a lot of these people, I mean, let's first and foremost point out that the people being held here our parents, their fathers, their mothers, their siblings, friends, to people who are outside of the center. I feel like a lot of the time they become these faceless immigrants, quote unquote, yeah. um, who we don't really know. But these people are ultimately humans. Um, these people are immigrants. Um, the Northwest Detention Center is the largest um, immigrant prison on the West Coast. And these people are coming from all from all over the world. They're people who have lived in the Northwest for many years. Some people are new arrivals, but predominantly for the people that I've spoken with, um, these are people who have lived in the area for a number of years. Um, many of the people um, I, I've heard of as well as talked with are um, of Latin American descent. Um, but there are other immigrants from across the world who are being held at the detention center as well. Now, these people are there because they have been uh, detained by ICE. That's the Immigrations and Customs Agency. Uh, what are generally the reasons that they're brought in? Are they rounded up in sweeps? Are they individually targeted? Does it vary? Um, I think it definitely varies. Um, some people are rounded up in quote-unquote sweeps. I think ICE would debate that um, qualification. But... Um, some of the people are even detained when they're the victims of traffic accidents. As I um, met with a family whose um, uh, father and husband um, was detained after he was rear-ended on the highway. Mm. Um, and the patrol officer happened to pull up his, his um, record and saw that he was undocumented. Um, so small things like that can suddenly crop up and that can be a reason for people being detained which is scary. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because, and it brings up the question as to where it was that, that he uh, had the accident, because in sanctuary cities and even sanctuary counties like uh, King County, that sort of thing is technically not supposed to happen. Um, so, right. yeah. How many people are being held at the detention center? I think the, the reports vary, don't they? The reports do vary. Um, I think the numbers that are out there are generally between 1,400 people. Um, but I know organizers um, specifically resisting um, the detention center, so with NWDC resistance, um, have said that the numbers can go up to 1,600 or even 1,700. So they are alleging that there is crowding at the prison. But um, I believe ICE has so far denied those claims. Right. And I think, uh, yeah, well, let's get into the conditions because uh, you mentioned crowding. Uh, as I say of the recording of this segment on April 17th, the hunger strike has ended 
for all but I believe were is one of the uh, detainees who is still continuing the strike. Um, you may correct me on that. Uh, when it began, I think there were more than 750 people participating. What were their reasons for starting the hunger strike? Right. Yeah. It, the numbers really jumped overnight. I mean, literally overnight. Um, I think it started with like or hundreds, there were four, then there was 415, then there were 750 and more. Um, so some of their demands include um, an increased wage um, for prison labor. Currently, some of the detainees um, are only being paid a dollar per day um, for work. And then after that, there's also their concerns about um, extraordinarily high commissary prices. So some things like um, a packet of ramen are 57 cents. While that doesn't sound like a lot for us on the outside, on the inside, that's just over um, half a day's worth of work. Um, So that is really concerning for lots of the detainees there. Um, Other demands include better access to medical care, um, speedier immigration hearings, which ICE has said is something that they cannot control because that is controlled by the Department of Justice. Um, They're also requesting um, more nutritional food um, from the cafeteria. Um, some detainees have said that um, the lack of variety in the food has become, is causing them to, them to become sick. Um, so that's a big concern there as well. And that's just among a few of their demands. So tell us a little bit about the facility where they're being detained in Tacoma, the uh, NWDC. You say it's the largest one on the West Coast? Yes, it is. Um, Yeah, so the Northwest Detention Center is um, exclusively an immigrant prison. So people who are detained by Immigration and Customs Reform are um, within our area are typically brought to um, the center when um, they're picked up by law enforcement for whatever reason. The detention center um, is owned by the GEO Group, which um, is backed by the Gates Foundation, which is pretty concerning. I think uh, I, I would say just just editorially speaking that it seems a little bit in odds with some of the work that the Gates Foundation does uh, worldwide. Definitely. But yeah, that's just to, that's just me adding my two cents in there. Yeah, <laughs> so. totally. And I think I think as of 2012, um, from the Gates Foundation's tax returns, I think they had invested about 2.2 million in the GEO group, according to some of our past reporting. Which is, I mean, which is kind of jaw-dropping, really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's talk about what happens to the people once they're there. Uh, how long are they generally there? Uh, once the court proceedings happen, are they deported? Does all this vary? Yeah, I would have to say that it does vary. I don't have a lot of details about um, exactly how the process goes. But I know that for one of the um, families that I spoke with when their father and husband um, was detained after a car accident, it was within a month that he was deported, about a month at least, that he was deported to Mexico. Um, So I think that it really can vary. I know that there are some folks that our reporters have spoken with at Stranger um, that have been held there for months on end. Um, so I, it really does vary from person to person. You mentioned in your piece that the strike came at a time when the Trump administration has moved to loosen regulations on these immigration centers. What are some of the regulations that the Trump administration is uh, aiming at undoing? So some of those um, things that the Trump administration are trying to loosen um, for detention, for immigrant detention across the country um, there's notifications for um, whether a detainee spends, I think, more than two weeks um, in solitary confinement. Um, there are, um, like, f- every um, 15-minute checks on potentially suicidal um, detainees. 
and uh, mental health evaluations. And it's also about providing um, staff members who can translate for detainees who do not speak English um, and someone who and providing someone who can advocate on the detainee's behalf. So those are just, those are just a, couple, a few things that the Trump administration um, is trying to, I guess, quote unquote, loosen um, from the from previous legislation. I think the final word on this should probably be that these are not just as you as we began the the piece, not just uh, statistics or faceless individuals. But this hunger strike, maybe in large part, either directly or indirectly, was aimed at uh, giving us a greater sense of these people as individuals. Right, exactly. I think that the key thing here is just remembering that these are people who have families that have been long established in the area, families that no longer have parents, no longer have grandparents, uncles, siblings, um, because of these restrictive laws and the Trump administration's efforts to really crack down, quote unquote, on immigration. Um, And I think that these people really do need support. Some of these folks don't have the money to have um, immigration lawyers Um, And immigration lawyers can't always help. Um, I think it's just important to remember the humanity that is contained within the walls of these prisons. That's a perfect place to leave it. Ana Sophia Knauf, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Time now for this week's call to action with, yes, some good news. First, it appears that as of this recording, Fox News is severing ties with Bill O'Reilly. In the TV business, this is known as firing. So the guy who has kept your right wing relatives good and riled up for the last 20 plus years is being shown the exit. I have said this before, but I, I think it bears repeating The very cynical fact that politicians and corporations are driven almost exclusively by their need for re-election and consumer dollars, respectively, is not always a bad thing and can be used to our advantage. Case in point. Also, a couple of quick polls to take note of. First, a Gallup poll released on April 17th shows that fewer and fewer people are believing Trump's let's be kind and call them falsehoods about his presidency and his performance therein. The number of people polled who believe that Trump keeps his promises has slid some 17 points since the election. Most notably, the drop was 11 points among Republicans and nine points among independents. As someone who kind of sort of works in journalism and is committed to conveying the truth, I find this to be very heartening. And finally, Maryland became the first state to enact a law to reimburse Planned Parenthood for its services if the organization suffers any federal cuts to its budget. I am hoping that we will see a few other blue states follow suit that are even more flush with cash. I'm looking at you, New York, California, and yes, Washington. And now for this week's call to action. The annual budget that the Trump administration submitted to Congress allocates $2.6 billion for his promised border wall, which, according to Homeland Security estimates, actually represents less than 15 percent of what the wall would ultimately cost. Bipartisan opposition is cropping up against the wall, spurred on in part by the fact that the administration is proposing cuts to agencies that actually do keep the country safe, like the TSA and the Coast Guard, to pay for said wall. Not to mention the fact 
that most experts, including those at Homeland Security, don't think it's going to do much to deter immigration. Spur that opposition along, won't you, by phoning your member of Congress and asking him or her to oppose any federal budgets that go toward the construction of a southern border wall. And that is this week's Call to Action. My guest this week is E.J. Juarez. He is the executive director of the nonprofit advocacy organization Amplify, which is dedicated to helping Washington and Oregon elect a progressive slate of candidates who more accurately represent the population that they serve, which is to say candidates who are more diverse in their ethnicity, their gender, sexuality, gender identity, and socioeconomic background. We get into how Amplify works to make this happen in a bit, but First, we started out by talking about EJ's background and his childhood growing up in Wenatchee and about his experience growing up as a Latino in a community that is predominantly Caucasian. So growing up uh, in Wenatchee was definitely an experience. It's a, it is a beautiful place. You're close to the mountains and national parks and state parks. Um, you've got the Columbia River there, but you've also got a city with a pretty extreme wealth gap. Uh, as well as a, a very redlined Latino community, which is segregated into pretty condensed part of town. And growing up, you know, I am a light-skinned Latino, and so I did not have a lot of the the experiences that my friends had or that members of my family have had in that city. Um, and there's, it's a city that's built on agriculture, right? It's the capital of the world for a reason. Right. So you have a lot of labor there that is dependent on... Uh, migrant farm workers, young people uh, that are working cherries and apples. And it was definitely a place where you were seeing the confluence of cultures and demographics changing every year. Do you recall when you first became aware of that being an issue politically? Yeah, it was It was something where my family took voting pretty seriously. And every year when there was an election, whether that was for a school bond or a presidential year or anything in between, they would set out their ballots, we would go grab a pizza, and it was a family event where they would talk about who they're voting for and why they're voting on certain measures and initiatives. And it was it was a nice family memory that we had. But ultimately, it wasn't until I was older than I care to admit that I first saw a person with a name like mine on the ballot in that community. You know, I go by EJ, but my legal name, my government name <laughs> is Eliseo, and my last name is Juarez. And I never saw anybody like that on the ballot. Mm -hmm. And when I did, you know, my family, it was just like every other candidate. It was, why, how are we voting here? Who are we going to vote for? And I remember not knowing anything and immediately choosing the other person. I didn't choose the Latino candidate. Is that because you felt that you had ab absorbed the negative messages about non-Caucasian candidates, even as a, a Latino yourself? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. I think that that's definitely one of them, right? Like implicit bias is not something that only white people have. It's something that is learned and conditioned into every person. And when you grow up in a community that tells you time and time again by showing you what leadership looks like and showing you who gets to be an elected official and you never see, you know, women more than one of those seats at the table, you never see a person of color more than one or two of seats at that table, that's something that just builds inside of you and you say, okay, that's probably not the most qualified. That's probably not this or that. 
And that's all internalized oppression that we teach our communities and that we teach our children. It was something where I, I could tell in that moment, like my parents had to explain to me what was going on, right? That this was a moment where somebody was breaking a barrier and somebody was stepping into their fullest life. And from then on out, I have really dedicated most of my career towards uh, opening doors into institutions where people of color are severely underrepresented and elevating the voices of people most affected by any given issue. And so before I, I came to the place where I am now, most of my work was focused on poverty and economic justice, where it was, why are we disproportionately affecting people of color through programs and, and service delivery that doesn't meet their needs? How are we breaking cycles of poverty through policy? And ultimately, the people that are making the best policy have firsthand experience with those things. When we have a representative and reflective democracy, we have better policy. You hold a master's degree and were a civic engagement fellow at the University of Washington, Bothell. Uh, in the past, you've managed campaigns for issues and candidates across the state of Washington. I'm kind of curious to know specifically how managing campaigns and candidates uh, informed what you do now. You kind of got to see how the sausage is made, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it influenced me pretty greatly. I never thought I was going to go run campaigns. Um, I thought I was going to go be a lawyer or a pharmacist, you know, something that made a lot of good money and my parents would be very <laughs> pleased that I had steady income. Um, and then I, I started running campaigns because there was a woman who was the first Latina school board president in Yakima who was going to run for office uh, for for the legislature. And I said, I want to be a part of that and I want to do that. And I ran her campaign. And what I noticed on, during that campaign, which was one of the most high profile races in the state that year, was that there were very, very few paid political, political operatives who were people of color. And there were even fewer that had the role of campaign manager. So in that cycle, I was one of a handful of people across the state who identified as a person of color running a campaign. And in the next cycle, there were even fewer. And that's why I do this work, because it's not just about who's on the ballot. It's about who gets to participate in the political economy. Right. When right. we infiltrate economies, right, there's a lot of money attached behind running campaigns. There's the, the ideals and there's the outcomes, but there's also this industry. And when you shut people out from gaining that institutional knowledge, you're pushing communities further and further away from decision-making power. And that is central to this work. We have to make sure that our campaigns are as reflective as the communities that they're working in. Yeah, well, that dovetails perfectly into what I wanted to talk about next, which is Amplify. Um, and let's talk about the mission, because you say on the website that, yeah, government doesn't look like the people that it represents. A lot of people see the problem in terms of the macro. I'd say that with the barest of exceptions, the Trump White House looks nothing like the country that it represents, either ethnically or socioeconomically. Um you are a little more focused on the micro, meaning you're not necessarily recruiting people for the Senate or House seats. You're more focused on community type elected positions, school boards, city councils, PCOs. Why is that? Because we believe and we've seen time and time again 
where the state legislature is bogged down in year you know, 250, it feels like, on the McCleary case, where it takes 12 to 15 years to pass transit packages for the next 30 years. We know that at the local level, we can move quickly to address real needs of working families and people that are struggling. We are not bogged down in the political Democrat versus Republican fights that, you know, we see at the higher levels. And when we talk about fighting Trump, when you look at like organizing for America, for example, President Obama's organizing vehicle after he won off election, mm-hmm. it centralized a lot of the energy and the hope and the aspirations of his policy agenda, and then it fizzled out. And it left a lot of pieces at, on the table because it was focused around a person, right? And, and when we talk about resisting, like we have to do more than resist. We actually have to be proactive because resisting only gets us back to reversion, It's going to take us back to where we were because it's a comfortable status quo. By looking at the local level and focusing our effort there, we're actually giving a proactive agenda to say, all right, here's the resistance, but here's actually why we're resisting, and here are these reasons, and we're advancing it in the cities. Right, and on the website, you use the word disruptive in creating change. I assume that's what you mean by that, yes? Absolutely. You know, you'll see a lot of candidate recruitment vehicles and a lot of uh, folks that are out recruiting for different populations, but ultimately they're, they're in it for innovation, right? They've built something different that accepts the status quo. And for us, we're really rejecting transactional politics. And we're just, we are absolutely disruptive in that way. We expect our candidates and the people that we work with to run differently because they have to build lasting infrastructure in their communities if we want to win for the next decade. If we only hold a seat in the next campaign, that's not a real win. A real win is making sure that that person's in, they deliver on policy, and then we've got the next person ready to go. Right, yeah. I mean, you're talking about creating a legacy, really, of lasting change in communities, which is great. And I think it's interesting that, like you say, you do it for the most part separately from the two-party political system. Although I'm sure there are instances, maybe at the county level and definitely at the state level, where you do have to engage with partisan politics. How do you navigate that? Yeah, for us, it's really easy because we know that voters don't care about internal party politics. They don't care about what a party is doing. They care about what leaders are doing and the value sets of people. And when you're at the local level, when primarily races are nonpartisan, it is even more critical that we move away from that binary of red pill, blue pill, right? Because this is something very different. Um, and our leaders have experience with, with their own lived lives, but also the awesome work they're already doing. And we want them to leverage that versus towing the line of an ideology that might not be applicable when you're running for mayor of a city of 5,000 people. Yeah, man, you use the word authentic on your website, too, and that really popped out for me. And uh, I, I guess I'd like you to just kind of expand a little bit more on what you mean by authentic. When we say authentic, we mean we're trying to subvert what it means to be a viable candidate and who gets looked at first and approached first to run for office. A great example is we worked with a woman who had some bankruptcies and she was widely respected in her community and people absolutely loved her and she was just a powerhouse. And when we went to her and we asked her why she couldn't run, she was like, well, I've got these bankruptcies in my past and, and the, the party keeps telling me that's not good. And the consultant said that that wouldn't fly. And you know what? The organization put a poll out in the field and it showed that voters really responded to it. 
because she lived a real life and her debt was medical related. She was struggling with the healthcare system that wasn't meeting the needs of a working wife whose husband ended up dying. She ended up running and winning. And I think that the fact of the matter is we never wanted her to hide from that struggle. Because she, right. I was going to say, did you actually have? Did you encourage her to put that story front and center? She used that story throughout her campaign because it highlighted some of the state level processes for how debt collectors were coming after her for debts that were paid off. You know, things like zombie debt, which the state regulated uh, three years ago. Those were issues that she was talking about before it was at the legislature. And without her story we wouldn't be educating the general public about this issue that was affecting a ton of people because traditional consultants and parties would have said, this is not something to run on as a strength. This is something to run away from. You know, I, it's, I noticed that when I said, did you encourage her to use the story? You backed away from that a little bit. And I know that (laughs) you're very intent on the fact that you don't want Amplify to claim credit for helping candidates achieve elected office. And I'm kind of curious as to why not. It seems like a great way to get the word out about the work that you do. So I, I will clarify that we encourage her to be her most authentic self. And that does not mean that we want to tell her what stories are most impactful because she already knew what they were. We wanted to help her tell the stories most effectively. In terms of how we claim candidates or really want to talk about the folks that we bring to the table, all we're doing is really playing air traffic control and giving people the skills that are very specific to running for office because they already have everything they need to be a great leader. That is not dependent on us. We really view ourselves as bridge builders, and we help them find that path towards elected office and expressing their own leadership differently. So then I'll ask you, uh, because you have a very clear mission on recruiting people who are, you know, from diverse backgrounds, uh, you know, in terms of gender, and as you say, in terms of uh, gender identity, LGBTQ, uh, ethnicity, and socioeconomic background. How does Amplify recruit potential candidates? Do they come to you? Do you go out and look for them? How does it work? Well, that's top secret. Um, (laughs) it's actually, it's, it's quite simple. Um, I think this is like the biggest secret in politics is that folks really feel like this is some secret backroom deal. And in some, in some spaces it absolutely is, but it's really about one person asking another person to run for office. And when we talk about the folks that we are talking about, it might mean that we go to a community and have five coffee dates with community leaders that we know, and we ask them the same thing. Who are five people that you absolutely adore that are doing amazing stuff right now in the community that you want to see in elected office? And we go talk to those five people and then five more people. And pretty soon we've talked to a hundred folks in a town and we've got a fairly good, you know, lay of the land. And we know where folks are at and where these power networks are. And we go through power mapping with them. Tell me what that means. What is, what is power mapping? Yeah, where we're looking at institutions and where political money operates in these towns. I think that when you're in a place like Seattle or Portland, you know where the big players are, the folks that are dropping big money in in political races. But when you're in a place like Lake Stevens or Yakima or Moses Lake, those institutions are very different. And so we help candidates understand that. And we're also being explicit around this is what a campaign would look like in your area. And we want to help you meet your, meet your goals as they are 
through elected office because we need you there. And so is that through field offices? Because your main offices are in Seattle and Portland. Do you do trainings across the state? Uh, how, how, does, how does it work on boots on the ground? <laughs> so we, our main offices uh, are in Portland and Seattle. We don't have field offices, but we travel a lot. Um, our cars get a lot of mileage. Lots of Greyhound buses. Um, so this year, you know, we're going all over the place. We have over 25 trainings scheduled. We're a little bit more than halfway through our spring series. And by June, we will have had a thousand people come through our trainings, which makes us one of the largest organizations of its kind on the West Coast. Wow. And, and if you really think about that, a thousand people, this isn't a thousand people just in Portland or a thousand people mm-hmm. in Seattle. We're talking about Woodburn, Oregon. We're talking about Issaquah, Pasco, Eugene, Gresham, Spokane. And that adds up because if you can build political skill among 60 people in Woodburn, Oregon, which is a tiny town, it's a majority Latino uh, area, you're looking at 60 people that are ready to cycle in and run for office relatively soon. And that's a huge shift in where power lives. So that's part of it. Can you talk about some of your, what you would consider success stories through, like maybe just pick out a couple out of the uh, thousand people that you have successfully worked with? Sure. Um, Well, so the thousand number comes from January of this year until June, we're looking at probably a thousand will come through the trainings, but that's really impressive, man. That really yeah. is, that's, that's something. I had no idea, actually, and I don't think a lot of people knew that uh, the amount of people that you're training uh, was that sort of number. That, that stands to make a real impact on this state. So, yeah, so, so give us an idea of some success stories. Absolutely. Uh, so, as you can tell, we got that hustle every weekend. We're somewhere. And on one of these weekend hustles, we were out there, and, and this was many years ago, we met Christine Reeves, who is now in the Washington State House. And uh, she is a woman of color, she's a mother, and she is an awesome progressive vote. It took many years to get to the right place where she was like, now is my time, I'm ready to go and ready to launch. And now, you know, she's in the state house. But she was somebody who came through us while we were progressive majority, we interacted with her while we were Amplify, and now she's a, a member of the state legislature. Another great uh, success story is Yakima, right? So we invested uh, almost eight years in that city and a lot of treasure knowing that we were playing the long game. And when we first started working there in 2008, it was a training-only program. So we would go and train a bunch of people and then leave. And then eventually that was training and then a few other programs. Then it was training and individual development and more programs. And ultimately... We knew that the people we were developing over year after year were positioning themselves for once we had the rules of the game changed because there were federal voting rights issues in that city. And we knew as soon as that trial wrapped up and as soon as that was provable in court, we needed to have the people ready to go. And we did. We had a huge number of Latino candidates and women candidates and young candidates running after that decision was made. And it resulted in a, a woman majority on that city council. Wow. Yeah, it resulted in a majority of that council being under the age of 40. And I think that that is uh, incredibly telling when the back work, the work behind the scenes happens for a long period of time where the kind of change that we can make. And so Yakima, as you know, is the only Republican urban center in the state, the only one. 
And we are steadily carving out more and more space for progressives to run and win. And that increasingly looks like women, people of color, people under the age of 35. And, and, and I could not be more proud of uh, examples like that. Well, you know, and I, I'm, I'm moved to say that the, the sort of, I guess, for want of a better term, a bottom-up strategy is something that, say, like the Green Party could possibly take a page from because they tend to focus on races at the national level, at the, you know, the top yeah. of the state ticket, instead of creating a, a local movement and, and building from there like you're doing. Um, I'm interested in the training process. Uh, can you give us kind of a snapshot of, of how, once you have a candidate uh, in mind, how you, how you train him or her? Absolutely. So we have uh, two different types of trainings. We have ready to run, which is the introductory course. And we do those in the spring. That's what we are currently on the road doing. Uh, and so folks out there will be in uh, Seattle this weekend, and then we're headed uh, out to Pasco. But that training is very much around you're 12 months plus out from running for office. What do you need to be doing now to make sure that your team is in place and that you're positioning yourself well to be a viable candidate and introducing folks to the baseline skills necessary to run effective campaigns skills such as like what field is how to fundraise, how to make sure that you're reporting and and being compliant with state law in terms of receiving money for campaigns all of this stuff is not stuff you can just fall into and guess. These are skills that are, are, are very specific. Oh, yeah. But our job is to break down the barriers, so we give it away for free. A lot of this stuff, you know, you have to pay a consultant for or you're paying uh, different organizations for. Our trainings are free unless we ask folks to pay for lunch. <laughs> but we do our best to keep it free. Um, and those are, those are some of the main things. Messaging is another big one. So we spend a huge chunk of the day helping people develop their stump speech, uh, helping people to go through a messaging plan for what their campaign will look like over the course of many months, all elements of the 101 ready-to-run trainings. How hands-on are you with all of that? I know that it's because of your background in running campaigns. Do you help kind of craft uh, messages personally, or is that something that your team does? Uh, It's a mix of both. So we have... uh, really wonderful people who come in both on staff and then we have adjunct trainers who are consultants or friends of the organization. Sometimes elected officials themselves will come and train. Oh, really? Yeah. And they use our content and they, you know, pepper it with their own experiences, which is really valuable. Mentorship is such a huge component of having people feel like they're ready to do this. I assume that you've had people who have achieved elected office who have come back to be mentors to new candidates, yes? Absolutely. So Lori Jenkins is a great example, the first out lesbian in our state legislature who, you know, is just a rock star. And when you talk about people that are just, you know, kicking ass, she is one of them. And (laughs) she trains with us and she comes and speaks to uh, our folks every time we go to Tacoma. And so we've got a a whole set of people that are deeply invested in the success of this work. You mentioned that the trainings are free. Um, How are you funded? I know there's a place on your website where people can donate. Uh, I assume you have other funding sources. We do. So we are funded uh, by major donors, folks who believe in this work, who have the capacity to give, uh, you know, large dollar donations and then foundations. So there are both small family foundations and national groups that are invested in this work pretty heavily. Two of the ones that come to mind are the Northwest Health Foundation, which is out of Portland. And then in Washington, you know, the Progress Alliance, 
These are two groups that are making long-term commitments to the infrastructure of the Northwest to advance progressive leadership. And so they're aligning themselves with you in in a public way through their dollars, which is great. Um, Do you work with other community and grassroots groups like, say, the many indivisible movements across Washington and Oregon? We do. We have not worked with Indivisible yet, but we work with primarily uh, community-based and constituency-based groups. So whether that's organized labor or groups like One America or CAUSA or PECUN, all of these groups are people that we work closely with to make sure that when they have leaders in their communities, because they're on the ground every day, that we are helping build skill and we are helping support them into their journey into uh, public leadership. The November election catalyzed a lot of people to run for office uh, more than possibly ever before. I think it was a wake-up call for a lot of people who are, if they were ever thinking about running for elected office, I think this is is definitely the time that they're going to do it. Uh, If somebody is potentially interested in running for elected office in either Oregon or Washington, can they contact you? Can they get involved with Amplify? Absolutely. So if you go to our our website, which is amplify.win, uh, you can sign up there. It says, I'm ready to run. Give us your name, your email. We'll follow up with you. Uh, there's a bit of a backlog right now, as you can imagine. <laughs> I'm sure there is. The day after the election, uh, you know, we actually had 50 people sign up on our website within 24 hours. Wow. And yeah. And that was with no prompt. We hadn't sent out an email. There was no social media. We were grieving at the moment. And, you know, folks were ready to go. And that has not slowed down. Typically, when we get unsolicited folks that are like, I need this skill, I'm ready to go. You know, it's a it's a it's like a roller coaster It goes up and down. It's usually when stuff happens in the national media. But it's been consistent since Election Day. We are averaging over 20 people signing up a day. And it's it is a huge crush of potential. And we're trying our best to make sure that we are moving our programs as quickly as we can to the most number of people, as well as providing as much support to the people who need it the most. Well, EJ Juarez, thanks for what you're doing. Keep fighting the good fight. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for being on the show. And that will do it for this week's Washington State Indivisible podcast. Do keep hitting me up with emails, questions, show suggestions, all that good stuff at WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Again, the email address is WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to Ana Sofia Knauf and to EJ Juarez. And thank you, as always, for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Bye.